are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For the past year and a half since taking over as agent in charge of the Federal Bureau of Investigation here in the Pacific, Stephen Merrill has made an effort to raise the profile of the agency. A recent recruiting campaign, Mana Wahine, drew about 100 women interested in a career with the FBI. Merrill is also warning of a nationwide surge in romance scams that prey on the elderly. Last week, the FBI highlighted a case where a senior lost a million dollars. And there is also a disturbing trend of sextortion cases involving young boys in online gaming. The FBI is preparing to launch another round of recruiting events to attract interested applicants, not just as agents, but as support staff as well. Here's Merrill. The FBI, in many ways, is always hiring, both for agents and every other job we have. And actually, agents are the majority in the FBI. We have probably about 13,000 FBI agents, but we have tens of thousands more employees doing other things, whether they be scientists, administrative, you know, accountants, just about everything. So we're trying to acquire that talent here in Honolulu and elsewhere. And what we're doing is we're trying to develop a workforce that is representative of the communities that we serve. And so that initiative, which we call Mana Wahini, we were really targeting female employees because what we're trying to do is get to where the public is, 50-50. And here in the FBI, we like that in our office as well as to match the public. So that event allowed us to really expose the FBI to female applicants who may not have been aware of what the FBI does. And there was a great response, I'm I'm proud to say. Hopefully a lot of those young women applied to the FBI and will take my place someday as I'm uh, enjoying life uh, at the seaside. But whether they be men, women, or, you know, any group of people, we encourage everyone to apply to the FBI. We have a great website, fbijobs.gov, and that will depict a series of jobs that are, you know, kind of rolling enrollment, uh, if you will. And if anyone wants to learn more about the FBI or our hiring, we have a recruiter here in our office in Honolulu, and that person is very busy getting out and meeting with the public. And you can always call our local number here or just find our website. The main website is FBI.gov, and there's links to our office as well as the FBIjobs.gov site. Is there anything that you're looking for now, any particular skills? I know at one time you were looking for translators that that could help with your investigations. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. We're always interested in people with language abilities. You know, one of the things we do, the FBI, while it's a domestic law enforcement agency, you know, we work international cases, and having language skills is a huge bonus for all of our employees. So that is a great skill to have. Another one, and we mentioned cybercrime, is people with computer expertise. You know, whether it be moving to a world of digital currency or a world where, you know, we're online all the time, the, the cyber activity, having skills as a computer scientists, for instance, would do, would not just make you valuable to the FBI, but anywhere in the, in, in, in the job world. But we at the FBI really want to capitalize on those skills so we can enter the next era with people not just with good investigative skills and good writing skills and good communication skills, but those with cyber skills as well, because uh, that really is the future of where we're going. We're ramping up towards February and everyone's favorite time, Valentine's Day, for all the, all the lovers out there. And uh, along with Valentine's Day comes traditional scams that operate all year round, but I like to highlight this time of year because there's a number of scams that always resurface uh, where they're incredibly sad. Uh, people will mask their identity to try to defraud someone with the allure of developing a relationship, whether it be through social media sites, direct communication, communication, people will lead them to believe that, you know, they're looking for a relationship. And along with that, unfortunately, in the fraud world comes a request for money. Now, I just want to warn all your listeners out there, if you meet someone online and you haven't seen them, haven't met them, and they're asking you for money, the best advice I can give you is stop the communication, break off that, because in all likelihood, it's a scam. And another sad part of that is the scammers, the criminals don't need to get everybody to agree to this arrangement. One person could be reaching out to dozens of people at the same time. So all they really need to do is get one person. We had a recent case in the FBI where someone literally lost uh, over a million dollars giving money to someone they believe to be 
looking for a relationship, trying to, you know, become a boyfriend, girlfriend. But in fact, it was, you know, just a criminal on the other end. So just something to be careful this time of year, uh, extra careful. And if you have any questions, if the relationship is developing too quickly or whatever, again, slow down, stop, don't spend money. And my last piece of advice would be move to another network. So if you're talking to someone on a social media site, let's have a video call or let's meet at the mall or something like that. And I would venture a guess that if the person is a criminal and not really interested in a relationship, they'll end the conversation right there because they don't want to meet. And has it in your experience that, you know, a lot of this is just uh, domestic or do we have scammers, you know, out of the country? Yeah, out of the country, for sure. This is an international operation. Could be someone local, but in all likelihood, again, they're not targeting people in our state. They're targeting people all over the world. And it makes our job harder in the FBI, but we're, we're very proud of the fact we have great relationships with law enforcement around the world. We have over 80 FBI offices in other countries outside the U.S., and because of those relationships, we're able to track down criminals overseas and work with the foreign banking entities to hopefully try to collect that money so we can give it back to the victims. But to answer your question, yeah, it's usually an international scheme, and someone may be claiming to be local, but... You you know, unless you see them in person, they could be anywhere around the world. Tougher to prosecute, but we, we, it doesn't dismay us in any way. We will go after wherever the facts lead us. Sadly, uh, you know, we've seen a rise in our country of uh, what we call sextortion, which is an extortion scheme targeting usually, you know, teen males is the most common group where someone will try to meet them either through video gaming operation or other online methods and convince them to put themselves in a compromising position in front of a camera, for instance, you know, taking off their clothes. And unfortunately, the criminals will tape that information, record it, and threaten to extort, threaten to put the information online. And of course, at that age, and we see, we've seen victims as young as 10, and the majority between 14 and 17, they become so embarrassed and so absolutely paralyzed with fear, they either get so distraught that they do harm to themselves, or they give in to the uh, criminals and you know, pay money or whatever it is. Whether it be the elderly or the youngest, those are the ones that bother me the most, those cases, because those are the people that tend to not be able to defend themselves properly and have enough resources available to protect themselves. So I just want to make sure all the parents out there are doing their due diligence, making sure that what their kids are doing online and in the gaming rooms is, in fact, what the kids claim it to be, because there are many elements out there that are trying to use those methods, the gaming rooms and the social media to exploit our children. And in the romance schemes, it's usually uh, trying to exploit our kapuna. That was FBI agent in charge Stephen Merrill, who sat down with us last week Friday to talk about the latest threats that the agency is seeing nationwide, as well as the ongoing recruiting efforts to counter the scams and uh, the numerous political corruption cases. Merrill has been working to connect with the community since taking over here more than a year ago. listening to the conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today we're remembering broadcasting great Jim Leahy, who we lost yesterday. Leahy's voice was synonymous with the University of Hawaii Sports Department for nearly 60 years, providing narration for some of its greatest athletic achievements. Take a listen. Back to pass. Looking. Looking.
He spent nearly 60 years as a broadcaster, but he wasn't always known for his golden pipes. Prior to becoming a staple on the air, he was a school teacher. For today's Backyard Quiz, what Oahu High School is Leahy best known for teaching at? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. Today on The Daily, Christopher Flavel on how, after 20 years of drought, the Colorado River is at a breaking point and why the seven states that depend on it can't agree to reduce their use. The federal government may soon have to step in to make an agonizing choice. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30... Molokai schools were reopened today after being closed by this past weekend's severe storms. Maui County endured the brunt of the system, getting more than 15 inches of rain in some areas. And the Friendly Isle experienced record flooding as well. Glenn Tevis is a Molokai farmer and University of Hawaii agricultural researcher. His Ho'olehua family farm in Molokai Central Plains was hit with heavy downpours throughout Friday and Saturday and is drying out along with the rest of the state. The Conversations' Lillian Song talked with Tevis this morning about the flooding. Our area is fairly flat. You still have runoff. I have a friend up the road, and he dug a big hole to clear his land and throw all the branches in this hole. It was about eight feet deep. And during this time, the hole filled up with dirt. Hawaii has the highest erosion rates in the nation to begin with. And to have uh, a storm such as this just accelerates the problem we're already dealing with. Trying to estimate the rain, I've been talking to different people. That rain we had around Christmas time was probably 10 inches in certain areas. I suspect this was probably double that amount from Friday to Sunday. And how many farmers are there on Molokai, Glen? Oh, heck, I, I, that's a hard one. In this area, probably probably about 20. The numbers have actually dropped from the early 80s when I started the job. We have less farmers. Competition is very difficult on the neighbor islands shipping products into Honolulu. So, you know, you either uh, go big or go home. So we have a lot of small farmers now trying to supply the local market here. There's some crops going out, such as papayas and sweet potatoes and organic vegetables going out as well. But for the most part, a lot of small farmers supplying the local demand through a food hub as well as the stores and sometimes the sides of the road. Hmm. And Glenn, you've always been working off the land. You understand patterns of nature. We are in a wet season, but with just this winter storm that really came down at such a fast rate, how is this different from years prior? Okay, <laughs> last year was strange. Okay, we didn't have any rain from January to March. So, you know, I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, earlier this year, it wasn't raining a whole lot until that December rain. It seemed like summer in a lot of respects. The ants were all coming out of the ground, and I said, wow, it's going to be a dry season. And then this came along, and when you think about climate change, you hear about it, you don't really understand it, but climate change for us has hit home. I mean, you can read about it, you can hear about it. Until it happens to you, it's just out of sight, out of mind. If you look at 
Well, let me start with the topography of the island. You know, so the central plains, Olivo, is fairly flat. You have a little gulches here and there, but it's fairly flat. The south side starts to slope down, so a lot of the dirt will go from the central plains down into the ocean, into Palaau on the south shore. As you get to Kanakakai, the same thing happens. Not as much flat land, more slope, and all that dirt is going into the ocean. As you get east of Kanakakai, the topography changes dramatically. And what you have in a lot of areas is a mountain of about 30 to 40 degree slope that runs almost all the way to the ocean. And you have deep, narrow valleys. And these type of valleys cause major flooding. You have so much face that can collect the water and it just comes right down. And so you have some areas where you have small pieces of land right along the coast, all flat land. Probably in the past it was taro patches. You have over 65 fish ponds along the coast. The, the largest one, probably 500 acres, that has been filled with soil a long time ago. So you have all this debris and sediment coming down, and the ocean was just totally brown, but now it's turned dark color. And the dark color is because the dirt has settled on the bottom of the reef. And now it's going to create all kind of um, algae bloom, invasive limu habitat, destruction of other organisms. And it's, it's a total disaster. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, you hear stories about 15 feet of soil and rocks on the side of the road. The county and the state has been down there clearing we have very few bridges on the south shore of the island. You have what is called fords, where you have a cemented river and you drive through that ford. So you have one on the west side of town and that one was overflowing. You have a couple on the east side where it was impassable. So you have these situations and then the rivers are overflowing. The rivers all came over the top and just flooded the whole area out. And so you have that situation right now. and. It's going to take a whole lot of energy to fix it. And I'm really surprised that a state of emergency hasn't been declared for Molokai at the least, or maybe even Maui County, because I don't know what happened in Hanasai. It seemed like from the radar maps that they had a lot of rain as well. So that's, we're trying to figure out what they're going to do about it. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Okay, so you're still in the state of trying to figure out what's going to happen. We understand classes are now resuming as a severe weather has eased, but are there any forms of assistance for you as a farmer for ag? Um, I haven't heard anything. Um, I think I've been able to weather the storm more than other people. The people on the east end probably got really devastated. I just talked to my colleague, Jennifer Hawkins, who lives on the East End, and she said the deer all came down from the mountain. They probably got washed out, or and maybe there's no food up there. So there's a lot of things happening. It's not just the people. You got all the, the plants and the organisms and the animals, and you know, there's a lot of upheaval going on right now. You know, we really don't know what's happening on the East End. You don't want to go drive down there and, and complicate matters. Um, people are just trying to get home. Schools were closed yesterday. One of the stores was closed. I think the stores were, a lot of the stores were closed on Saturday and also Sunday. So this also affects the food supply on the island. I don't know what the status of the barge was, whether the barge came in. The barge usually comes in Monday and Thursday, so the storm didn't hit yet. You know, the food got onto the island, but 11 to 12 barges a year are canceled. So one, one barge a month is canceled. And from that barge, you'll see a shortage of food on the island. So this idea of food security is, is hitting home. It's probably more important than it's ever been before after this storm. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to share or touch upon that we haven't talked about yet? Um, well, you know, the deer probably played a role in this, but it's a really important resource for the island, a protein resource. So that needs to be managed. There's areas on the island where... We could probably have more access to, can control the deer way better, such as the west side of the island. So we really need to look at that as part of the solution in reforesting this island, including the coastal areas, and um, having everything uh, in a better shape than it is right now. Thank you so much for your time, Glenn. I appreciate you sharing what you're seeing. Okay. All right. Take care now. You too. Stay safe. 
That was HPR's Lillian Song with Molokai farmer Glenn Tevis talking about the long recovery ahead following the weekend storm that heavily damaged Maui County. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. Next time on The World. This Italian talk show host is asking what the Irish know about drinking wine. You see, Irish authorities plan to put health warning labels on Italian wine bottles, pointing to a link between drinking alcohol and cancer. Italy sees it as a direct threat to its economy, its culture, and heritage. Our story on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat today looks at efforts to get the state to be more transparent about the deaths of inmates behind bars. Politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a story uh, by Kevin Dayton, uh, and I know Civil Beat. You know, you, you folks have been really pushing to try mm. and get the reports about the stories behind what's been going on with these deaths of the inmates. I mean, you'd think it'd be pretty basic if a, if an inmate, uh, a prisoner, dies in one of the state's prisons or jails in state custody, uh, that that would be something that should be made public. And not only that, not only the names of the person that was uh, deceased, but how they died. Uh, so this is something, you're right, we've been reporting on for a long time now. Kevin Dayton has taken the lead and I'm pitching for him today because, of course, the legislature's in session and he's as crazy as ever. But Kevin's story up today talks about um, a House and a Senate bill that would actually require correction officials uh, to announce each prisoner's death and put it on a website so that everybody could see it. It would include information on exactly uh, what caused that fatality. We'll see whether this gets through the session. Uh, the Department of Public Safety has not been terribly receptive to these ideas in the past. And by law, they normally report mm. this info to those lawmakers. Well, they do. The governor uh, gets that information. The legislature gets that information. Uh, but in terms of us finding out, and when I say us, I mean the media, we actually have to call DPS and say, hey, we heard about so-and-so dying and maybe even providing the name. And then DPS goes, oh, yeah, you're right. And, you know, this is really in contrast to what a lot of other states do routinely. That includes... California, Arizona, which, by the way, is where a lot of Hawaii inmates are, several hundred. Also, the state of Nevada. It's, it's a routine reporting uh, of an inmate's death in state custody. Uh, and that is something that um, this bill from um, Sonny Ganadian, he's a House rep, but he's helped author both the House and Senate versions, says people, loved ones really deserve to know what happened. It shouldn't be anything mysterious. This is about respect. Um, and uh, but but we'll see. Uh, the, I haven't checked on the status of the bills, but as I said, there has been resistance from the public safety, which runs the jails and prisons statewide. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I mean, I understand that there are some privacy issues, but um, mm, yeah, <laughs> you know, and and uh, you know, we heard uh, the governor in his state of the state of speech, you know, kind of uh, pledge for more transparency, you know. Um, in government, yes, he has, and and perhaps as a medical doctor, he would be even all the more sympathetic should that bill come across his desk. But um, so those reports that the governor himself and the legislature gets, the idea in this legislation would then make that same information 
uh, inmate deaths uh, available a week after. It would be posted on a website. Now, in terms of the cause of death, there are some there are some um, privacy clauses involved here. Um, that would be, for example, what if if that information is confidential? It's determined that that should not be made public. What if there's an ongoing criminal investigation? And and even if that information on how they died, uh, why they died. Uh, is made public, it would still be later. It would, in other words, it would have the name of someone's death, and then later they would post uh, the cause. So there's a little lag time there, and I'm sure part of this is also uh, notification of family members. You don't want to be picking up a a newspaper, reading online or on TV or on the radio and hearing about these things. So, so there is a, a concern about being respectful. Yeah, I mean, that's understandable. But, you know, you want to know if, if your loved one is behind bars and something mm. happens, you want to know the circumstances. You know, was this person not protected? Did someone get into a cell? I think Kevin actually wrote about, uh, I think, an inmate. Uh, on the mainland, right, where someone sure. uh, died at the hands of another inmate. So you want to know those details. Exactly. And by the way, I should say that um, the Hawaii Correctional Systems Oversight Commission, a fairly new body, has actually endorsed these bills. DPS um, has actually changed its policies over the last few years in regards to these disclosures. Up until 2020, it, it didn't announce publicly. But like I said, they would confirm if the reporter called and said, hey, here's what we heard. Then they changed that in late 2020. They stopped making those announcements, except except if they were deaths by COVID, related to COVID mm-hmm. infections. That was something advised by the attorney general. Well, we went to to court on that. We sued in 2021. A circuit judge agreed with us. So names are now being posted more regularly, but it's still a, an uphill battle to get this information from DPS. Right. And Kevin's story talks about how there were a couple of uh, inmates who died of drug overdoses. And you're saying, well, OK, how did these drugs get in there in the first place? Exactly. And that's, you know, there's a there is a level of secrecy. We know about the problems uh, in our system. There's too many people in a lot of the facilities. Uh, We need to focus more on rehabilitation. But of course, there's still a whole lot of people raising a fuss about the high crime rate. And so it's a tug of war. But uh, we'll see how this legislation does. And I'm sure Kevin will be following the bills closely and will be reporting it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. I'll read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Some of Hawaii's best female high school players are taking the spotlight this week. And amidst the championship games is talk about a Native Hawaiian team that may be headed to New Zealand to compete for the first time. HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. We've got the state girls uh, soccer championship tournament on Oahu later this week. And amongst those players, you will have the first ever Hawaiian women's national team. So this a sort of two-year process of scouting and pooling top Native Hawaiian talent across the islands. There were 38 players from Maui, Kauai, Oahu, and Hawaii Island that were chosen to represent uh, the Hawaiian national team in the international competition uh, this summer. And that's going to coincide with the FIFA Women's World Cup uh, in Aotearoa in Australia as well. But the formation of this uh, Na'alapa Hawaii uh, is what they're called, the Hawaiian athletes, the island's first uh, U18 men's and women's Hawaiian national teams, is really spearheaded by a Waikapu Maui couple, Vernon and Trisha Kapua'ala, longtime soccer players and soccer parents and soccer coaches and refs, every part of the game. And uh, for them, you know, the goal was really uh, to recover and rebuild that sense of Hawaiian national identity and consciousness through the sport of soccer, which is what uh, their family has sort of um, instilled in their kids from a really young age. Uh, here's Trisha, one of the co-founders of Hui Kanakapovavai, explaining that mentality. What a brilliant way to reclaim, recover, express, you know, use sport and the power of football, the most loved sport in the world, to demonstrate how nationality can be expressed and unify. We need that unity. And what better way through sport? You see how that happens for schools across islands. 
we're going to see him pretty soon, right? <laughs> you know, I didn't play soccer, but you did, right? <laughs> I did, I did. So to see these this worlds combine, these worlds combine in a way is really interesting, um, and I really think it's a reflective of uh, sort of a, a bubbling of of history and and a knowledge about the overthrow and what came after in terms of the Hawaiian Kingdom. And um, the the lack of a treaty during annexation, things like those conversations, I think, are really pushing people to um, really reclaim that identity, regardless of the current political climate. So, fourteen of the eighteen girls on the Hawaiian national team are actually going to be competing in the state for the state crown this weekend. That's, you know, I think very um, sort of reflective of the the level of play. This isn't just. Uh, we want to get together and be Hawaiian and play soccer. These are some of the best of the uh, players in the state that are going to be representing this team. Uh, Ian Andrew Mork, the technical director for Hui Kanakapova by a longtime scout and who's been uh, coaching soccer professionally uh, since 1999, has said, you know, there's there's a precedent for this. He was uh, living in Europe and uh, in Holland, I believe, and w- went to watch uh, Barcelona and the teams that were playing in Spain and came across the catch. Catalonia national team. So Catalonia, same thing. They're an autonomous community within the borders of Spain, uh, not recognized by FIFA or uh, the federations that govern association football, but they've decided to continue to play and represent their community. Uh, So here's Mark kind of explaining what he saw in that. They used football to actually have their identity because they didn't see themselves as part of Spain. That was just, you know, their their desire to uh, represent themselves and speak their language, which was forbidden at the time of the Franco regime, um, they could only speak in the stadiums. And uh, and so the, they were able to kind of use football as their way to, uh, to have their identity and kind of showcase them as a people. And it was really a lot of pride involved. And for folks who might remember, the 2010 um, World Cup, Men's World Cup, was uh, taken by Spain, won by Spain, and six of those players were actually Catalan, uh, came mm-hmm. from the Catalonia uh, national team and that program. And that's really the hope uh, for Mark and Kapua'ala in this program, is to really just build a national team program that uh, has a pipeline of youth, a native Hawaiian youth, playing soccer, and being able to have opportunities uh, beyond high school, whether it be college. College or professional, because we have, uh, we do have. I'm thinking of Natasha Kai off the top of my head. Some players who have gone on to play professionally, and that pipeline and those opportunities are sometimes not available for folks here in Hawaii. They have to go to the mainland and compete, uh, uh, and at a very uh, higher level. So, what this group wants to do is bring that here and see if that can help build up, uh, develop the players to play at that international level. Yeah, no, I mean that's great because you're always looking for opportunities and and ways to spotlight, um, you know, young athletes. Uh, and 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 the the championships. Where are those being played this week? Championship. Wanna... The final game will be at YPO Stadium YPO. A Saturday night. Uh, but up until that game, starting Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, will be at several different high schools here in Oahu. Okay, great opportunity to see our young talent. And, yeah, I mean, what a wonderful uh, uh, experience to be able to, to go to New Zealand. If they can, you know, raise the funds and yes. go down there and compete, that would be awesome. That's exactly right. We'll have more of that uh, as we move on to our cup, yeah. Okay, all right. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. That was our reporter, Kuvehi Reishi, talking to us about a new opportunity for Native Hawaiian girls soccer players uh, to compete internationally. You can... Um, Check out her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
now it's time for your backyard quiz. Uh, we are remembering longtime sports broadcaster Jim Leahy. Leahy's voice narrated University of Hawaii sports for nearly 60 years. During that time, he was named Hawaii Sportscaster of the Year 17 times. He started his career on the radio alongside his father, Chuck, and then moved over to television at KGMB and later expanded to calling games on K-5 and OC-16. Leahy was best known for calling UH football and basketball games, but at one point was calling as many as seven different sports in a year. In 2016, he was inducted into the UH Sports uh, Circle of Honor. He also passed his voice and love for sports to his son, Kainoa, who is now the lead sportscaster for UH Sports. But before Jim Leahy made a career on the air, he was a school teacher, most notably at Campbell High School, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Leahy passed away yesterday. He was 80 years old, and he was my favorite. And our winner today, Mike from Kaimuki, you got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to the Kauai War Memorial Convention Hall in Lihue, Sunday, February 12th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, it's a live event on the incredible food culture of Hawaii. We talk with top chef star Sheldon Simeon, James Beard award-winning chef Robin Mai, and many more guests trying to find out why Hawaii is maybe the best place on earth to eat. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Beginning Saturday morning at 9, following Weekend Edition. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Black History Month officially kicks off tomorrow. One of the many events highlighting African-American stories tied to Hawaii's history includes the Honolulu African-American Film Festival. It runs February 2nd through the 26th at the Honolulu Museum of Art. Akemi Glenn is the executive director of the Popolo Project. She spoke with the conversation Stephanie Hahn about the influence of Native Hawaiians on the black population and the Popolo Project as a community resource for educators and families. This is the first time we're returning to in-person showings at Doris Duke Theater at Honolulu Museum of Art. And our African American Film Festival is always a really interesting time to bring our community together and to explore different kinds of productions around um, identity, around geography, around stories. And we have a lot of wonderful films that we're showing this year um, that touch on the African American experience, of course, but also kind of global blackness and conversations around uh, black identities in other places as well. And we're hoping to really tie the film selections as we as we normally do to an experience here in Hawaii. So there's a couple films that I'd love to shout out that sure. are part of the film festival. Uh, our opening night film is called Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. It's a documentary about the organizing that was done by the Southern Nonviolent um, Coordinating or Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, um, and the work that they were doing in a, a very impoverished rural community to get people to vote and how those experiences led them to to do much larger organizing on a national and international level. And I think it'll really resonate for communities in Hawaii, um, though we're somewhat geographically removed from that particular history. I think we have in common with that story um, kind of energy around organizing and looking out for each other and really building power together. So the opening night film is one that we're really excited about. That sounds great. I was just wondering, I'm going to ask it right now, um, do you think because of geographic distance that the 
the black community here might be positing themselves more in a global uh, sensibility rather than under the national rubric of an American identity? I'm just curious about this. That's a great question. You know, I would have to slightly reframe that. I think a lot of black communities think of ourselves as part of a global conversation just because of the nature of our history. Um, so even when we're talking about very rural people in the U.S. South, for example, um, where my family is from, um, we always had an international awareness of how we were situated. We might be immediately concerned with our own issues and particular uh, kind of acute experiences in a locality, but there's always been a, a very um, global understanding of blackness, and I would say that the Hawaii community is quite the same. Lately, we've been reading about examples of powerful black women leadership all the way up to our vice president, and I was wondering if you had any films that might be pointing to this you know, black women as leaders, as community leaders, as moral leaders of the United States, et cetera. We, we do, certainly. Um, I, I think black women's leadership is something that's undeniable about our community and our history. Um, and, and again, in black communities all around the world, we have women who have really um, invested their time and energy into lifting up all of us. Um, we have two films in particular that come to mind around the theme of black women's leadership. One is um, the, the film Golden Heart, which is about uh, Ambassador Watson, who's from California and has done a lot of work both at the grassroots level and at the electoral level to advocate for um, people in various communities in California and across the United States. And I believe that that film is having its premiere um, at our film festival. So that's one to watch out for. And um, several people who are involved in the making of that film will be in attendance. And we're hoping that Ambassador Watson will be as well. Oh, that so, would be awesome. um, it'll be a really wonderful opportunity there. What might we learn from the way that black women leads stylistically or in terms of content or the vision that they carry? And what can we attribute to this quality. Certainly. There's another film that we're showing called The Smell of Money, which um, looks at a very um, somewhat impoverished rural community in eastern North Carolina that has been plagued by pollution and uh, impact on their water quality and air. And many people in this very remote community have been struggling for some years. And you'll see in that film a really kind of quiet example of women's leadership. Women are not the only people leading in that community, but a couple of the protagonists that we follow are women who, in a very deliberate and careful way, I think, um, consider not only their position and what will happen to them and their families, but are also thinking really broadly. And I think that's something that is in common across many black communities and many black women leaders. Have you noticed an increased awareness of the black experience in Hawaii due to the Black Lives Matter movement and the different consciousness that might be spreading across the United States? And what might be some myths and maybe even some truths of the situation of diversity here and how blacks who reside here are considered? Certainly there's been a more of an awareness and more visibility of our black community here in Hawaii over the last several decades, I would say, um, for several reasons. And I think very acutely people are thinking about us because of the events of 2020. But I think the trend was starting before then. Um, certainly when Barack Obama was elected to the U.S. presidency, there was both here in Hawaii an awareness that this black man had grown up here and was a part of our community and still has ties here. Um, but also across the United States and around the world, there was an awareness that there is this African-descended person whose home was here in Hawaii. And I think that raised a lot of questions for black people outside of Hawaii, as well as for our community here about how we are represented and how, um, as Obama was telling his story on a much larger platform and on a larger scale, how we felt or didn't feel represented by what he was sharing. So in the last several years, um, there have been uh, lots of op-ed and think pieces that have come out in black media saying, maybe you should move to Hawaii. It seemed like it did well for Barack. Obama. And so there's something that in our community we kind of anecdotally refer to as the Obama effect of people coming from North America, from the mainland, to move to Hawaii in the last several years since Obama was president, just because it was on their radar as a place that might be welcoming and might be open to having diverse experiences. Certainly, 
the events of 2020, of course, made the experiences of black people here in Hawaii and around the world impossible for us to ignore as a, as a larger community. And I think that there are there are definitely reverberations and echoes from that moment in 2020 that we're still kind of dealing with here in Hawaii. When those events were happening, uh, when we were seeing representations in media of really aggrieved communities who were essentially actively mourning and fighting for their lives in a very real way, there were questions here uh, amongst folks who were like, we don't live with that kind of threat of violence in Hawaii on a regular basis. And I think for our non-black community and family and friends, it was very hard to understand how some of us who also really identify with Hawaii were also identifying with people who were under that kind of threat. For our organization in 2020, what we really invested in and continue to invest in is creating space for black people whose home is here in Hawaii, who are local, um, who are connected here to find community with each other so that we don't have to think about blackness as something external to our community, which often happens. So many of us have the experience of being presumed to be in the military, being transient, um, sometimes being tourists. For many people, including black indigenous people, black Hawaiian people here, um, there's a sense of, you know, our blackness uh, takes us a step away from Hawaii. And I think that what we hope to do in our work at the Pol Polo Project is that we start to open up not only dialogue spaces, but places for us to connect with each other and understand that there's a lot in common between our experiences here in Hawaii, which is a very unique place, and global black experiences and experiences of other kinds of people around the world. I noticed that the Popolo Project seemed to be very vested in ideas of educating the public. I was wondering if you can tell our listeners a bit about your programs. They look fantastic, like fantastic resources for teachers out there. Certainly, yes. Um, we really do invest a lot in education. I think part of that comes from my own background as an educator and also realizing that there's so much for us to learn and also realizing that learning together is a way to build community and connection. So we offer programs throughout the year. Um, we have a resource on our website called the Pol Polo Syllabus, which is a collection of educational resources. Some of them are academic, some of them are a little more accessible, but resources about black experiences in the world and especially here in the Pacific, not only here in Hawaii, but in the larger Pacific that help to orient our community to our experiences and hopefully inform but also raise some questions. We also have a couple of youth programs. Calabash Circle Youth Program happens every month, and it's an enrichment activity for Keiki, um, age 3 to 14, who want to come, and their, and their families are welcome as well, who want to come and learn about the diverse cultures of the African diaspora and the Black Pacific uh, together. So somewhat like people might be familiar with, like Japanese school or Chinese school, yep. it's similar to that on a little bit smaller scale. Our community is a little bit smaller, too. Throughout the year, we have lots of opportunities for community members to read books together in book clubs, to take courses together. Um, I often lead a course called Understanding Race and Belonging in Hawaii, which is kind of a, a survey of the history of Hawaii and connecting it to some contemporary data and facts that help us understand what's going on here. But there's always something going on, so I'd encourage listeners to check out our website. How might alliances or even complications develop as we consider the U.S. or the American empire when we think of the black and native Hawaiian population and how they intersect. I'm wondering if you might be able to describe the link, if there is one, between blackness and indigeneity. There is certainly a link, and I think um, historians, many different historians, have tackled this question in the last couple of decades, certainly. But I think one of the links that's really important is not only situating this in terms of the United States, but the kind of larger history of colonization. What has made people black or indigenous is really a flattening of our distinct cultures and identities. Those markers are related to our relation to power structures. Borders and boundaries of blackness have shifted over the last four to seven hundred years around the world and certainly here in Hawaii there are things that are contested that people are not exactly sure of who counts as black and who doesn't and I think that's something that's come up in indigenous communities around the world as well. I also find it really important to say that black people and indigenous people are not mutually exclusive. In many ways the concept of our blackness is rooted in our indigenous identity over many centuries and, and many of us are displaced indigenous people. In the Americas, we found that when African people were trafficked to the Americas and enslaved, 
they formed all kinds of alliances with indigenous people that they encountered there because not only were they in similar positions vis-a-vis the economic and political structures, they also shared a lot of values and practices, whether we're talking about cultural practices, relation to the environment. There are a lot of things that allowed us to recognize each other. And so I would say here in Hawaii, all of those things are active in different ways depending on the people involved. So you find black people who move here and are really um, excited by the ways that Native Hawaiians are asserting their sovereignty and control over their culture and speaking their language something that's inspiring to us. I think especially when you think about certain ones of us, like I think about my, my own family and community. You know, my first ancestors were enslaved in the Americas in the 1600s, almost 400 years since anyone in my family was directly from Africa. At the same time, there's a memory of having control over those parts of ourselves. And I think there's a real recognition when black folks end up in Hawaii of the power and the real strength that comes from Native Hawaiians asserting themselves, and and also the need for there to be justice for Native Hawaiians beyond that, that we can actively see what's happening as parallel to our communities. So many of us recognize the same patterns of incarceration, gentrification, land dispossession, and are looking for ways to connect. How can the people in Hawaii best show their support for the black community? How can we provide feelings of safety, of belonging? Probably not a surprise. As I mentioned, I'm coming from an educational practice myself, and I would encourage people to learn more about us. Um, I think there are a lot of great resources out there. We were talking about some earlier. Um, Definitely visit our, our syllabus. But I think it's important for people to understand more about the history of Hawaii Understanding the history of Hawaii will help you contextualize what our community experiences here, whether we're talking about the very first people of African descent who arrived in Hawaii in the 18th century, or we're talking about the connection between, you know, the fall of Reconstruction in the United States and what happened with the overthrow. Um, There's a direct line from Jim Crow in the U.S. South and the overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Um, And then secondly, I think be willing to be surprised by what you don't know and be willing to take action uh, once you know something, um, whether that's something that helps you contextualize your relationship with our black community here in Hawaii or ask questions about blackness in our Pacific region or beyond. That was HPR Stephanie Hahn talking with the Papolo Project's Akimi Glenn. They were talking about the 12th annual Honolulu African American Film Festival uh, at the Honolulu Museum of Art, which runs from February 2nd through the 26th. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear why the Nurses Union is backing off the idea of joining other states with the reciprocal licensing program. You can call our talkback line for feedback, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or online on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.